1: Each week, we hear from missionaries, ministry leaders, disciple-makers, and church planters as they share about God's work in their lives and ministries. Like us, they are ordinary people who serve an extraordinary God. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your host, Brian Ensminger.
0: All right, let's get started. Back in 2000, Grant Haynes and his wife founded Global Frontier Missions, At the time, they were ministering to the Mixteco Indians in Mexico, but now they're in Atlanta, Georgia, working among the refugee population. As we learn about Grant's ministry today, we're also going to talk about some ways that we can impact the nations for Christ without ever leaving our cities. But before we get into that, we're going to get to know Grant a little bit more, because like all of our guests, he's more than just a list of missionary accomplishments and credentials. He's a real person like you and me, a husband, a father of three, an ordinary person serving an extraordinary God. So Grant, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So one of the things that I like to do as we start to get to know somebody is kind of understand a little bit about your past and some of the experiences that you've had. And as I think about the ministry that you had in Mexico, my assumption is that like many missionaries, you may have had the opportunity to eat some interesting foods. Were there any that you ate that were extremely good and some things that you might not have ordinarily expected to eat that you just really enjoyed?
2: Um,
3: one of the things that they eat down in Oaxaca, Mexico, where we were, is grasshoppers, which actually started growing on me a little bit.
0: Really, <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Yeah. So, as, as you think through the the years of ministry that you've had, and you know, the way that you've ordered your life, is there maybe a scripture or a quote that's been really meaningful in how you've how you've lived your life?
3: Um, Matthew twenty four fourteen has always been a life verse for me. In this gospel, the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come.
0: And and as you think about that, how has that impacted your life? How do you flesh that out?
3: Um, just that—that's the passion that God's given me, kind of the Romans 15 call that God put on Paul's life, that he didn't want to go preach the gospel where it had already been preached, it had always been his ambition to preach where there was no foundation. That's always sort of been a driving point in my call in ministry, trying to find the people that have never had access to good news and make Christ available to them.
0: So would you consider yourself primarily a pioneering missionary, if you will?
3: Yeah, frontier missionary, apostolic, pioneer
0: Okay. Yeah. And so I know that we're going to get into this a little bit later as we start talking about your ministry specifically, but it's really interesting that you would be operating as a pioneering missionary in Atlanta, Georgia. Was there an experience in your life that kind of led you in that direction?
3: Um, When we were on the field down in Oaxaca, we were looking at all the different villages that we were ministering in. And, you know, we would go into these villages, there are about 80 villages within a two hour driving distance. Uh, from our market town of Flachiaco and 80 villages that didn't have a Christian presence, no missionary, no Bibles, no Christians, no churches. Um, and we would just go in and build relationships with the people. A lot of times they would grab their kids and run into the hut where we the first green gringos they had ever seen. And so it would just take a lot longer time to build trust with the people Um, One of the villages, Yukawami, it took about five years to see the first person become a believer. And we started doing the math. Five years times 80 villages, 400 years. God, there's got to be a better way than this. What's going on? How does your gospel make it into all these villages? And as we started doing studies and research, we found that the majority of these um, people groups or villages weren't getting reached through the traditional means of missionary goes in learns the language lives among the people shares christ baptizes new believers but it was really when they left their context and went to mexico city where a lot of them were working up in the fields in Ensenada, and some of them even coming up some legally and some illegally to the u.s hearing the gospel accepting christ and then taking the good news back to their villages So that was a pretty big paradigm shift for us. We had always said, go, go, go to the nations, go to the ends of the earth, go to the people that have never heard good news, and then all of a sudden we're finding out maybe the best way to reach some of these people that have never had access to the gospel would be reaching out to them on our university campuses as they're immigrants, as they come over as refugees, and that was a total paradigm shift. Um, For us, frontier missionaries, apostolic pioneer, frontline, take the gospel to where it's never been taken before.
0: That that's really interesting. I had never considered that, but I, I know that in terms of thinking about a personal ministry, you know, if you're ministering to someone in the workplace or something like that, it's very often those times of transition in their lives when they're most open to um to to something new, to maybe believing in Christ, maybe taking the next step. So it's it's really interesting because I'd never considered that. Um how how long were you ministering in the villages before you started to kind of see, oh, this is how this is happening here?
3: Um, We were working down there for about 13 years, and it was probably the last three years um, of doing research and really trying to figure out what does it take to see these people reach for your name and your kingdom.
0: Okay. Yeah. And and while you were down there for those 13 years, I'm assuming you had your kids, your wife was there with you. What was was the family dynamic like living in, in Mexico for you?
3: All three of my kids were born down there, and I went at a really young age. I was only 19 when I went to the mission field. Uh, My wife was 21. Uh, We were still single when we went down there, so we lived with those families for the first two years, really got language and culture really well, really felt like we were Mexican in our hearts and stomachs, and then all three kids were born there. So Mexico had become a total comfort zone for us. Um, Our ministry grew quite a lot over the years until we had about 18 folks on staff and we had trained a lot of nationals to do evangelism and discipleship and church planning and we were asking God what was next and spent a little time in the 1040 window where the majority of the unreached people groups are that haven't heard of Christ, thinking, okay, God, you've got this call in our life to take the good news to the ends of the earth, to the people that have never had access to good news. So spend some time in Morocco to see if God was maybe calling us to to North Africa, or to the Middle East, or the Muslim world. Spend some time in India see if God wanted us in South Asia. Um, spend some time over in Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand to see if God maybe was giving us our birth the Buddhist world in Southeast Asia. Um, And as we were doing that, we just prayed and really sought the Lord because, you know, Mexico had become a comfort zone for us. We wanted to make sure that our family could go to a new place that wasn't home. And as we really sought him, we really felt like he called us back to the U S both to get the local church excited about missions and to reach out to all the internationals that are coming to this country Um, And we kind of fought him on that. Honestly, Mm -hmm. U.S. had sort of become a Nineveh for us. It was like, God, send us anywhere but back to America. We loved our kids growing up overseas. They were bilingual, bicultural, in the local schools. Um, But it was really interesting that God called us back here. To reach out to internationals, and we would have preferred to be overseas. Honestly,
0: <laughs> that's really interesting. So I'm, I'm thinking about that, and you know, over the course of a decade and a half or so, it sounds like you either visited or ministered in a number of different countries. I, I lost count. It was probably like seven or eight. Is that about right?
3: yeah,
0: something like that. So so as I think about ministry over that kind of time frame, it's it's nearly impossible to have ministered for that long without some kind of challenge or failure. And one of the things that I find happens often in, as I talk to missionaries or as I hear missionaries share in church or things like that is we tend to get the highlights um, because it's not always comfortable sharing some of those other things. But I find that in terms of human beings connecting with each other, we actually connect better a lot of times around the challenges. Is there a a time when you faced a significant challenge or a failure that you'd be comfortable sharing with us?
3: Um, Yeah, I would say a lot of those years in Mexico, where we didn't see a ton of fruit, you feel like packing your bags and coming home. Um, you know, spending several years in one village waiting for someone to be interested in Christ or for his word to come alive to them, There are definitely discouraging moments, times that we felt like, man, could we be better off back at home, working a normal job and sending our money instead. But every time we felt that, we would just ask the Lord, God, do you want us to go home? Do you want us to stay here? And one of the things that kept us going was knowing how big an impact us going had um, on our faith communities and churches back home. Oh yeah. Uh, even when we weren't seeing fruit in the in the mission field. We just know that our presence on the mission field was such a challenge to our supporters and to our churches back home, and they were becoming more Jesus-focused and more missions-minded. Um, so that, that was something that kept us on the mission field several times, was knowing the impact we were having on those that were sending us.
0: Yeah, you know, that's that's really powerful. Can you, can you share a little bit more about how your being on the mission field impacted the folks back home?
3: Well... My wife's home church is just a, a little country Baptist church up in Virginia. They they had always given their money to Lottie Moon, offering and given to their denomination, which is great. But she was the first homegrown missionary from her church. And they sent us out to the nations. And they started coming down and visiting us in Mexico and really got a vision for the nations um, rather than just putting their money in the offering plate. Now was tangible. They knew missionaries. They knew the names of the people that we were discipling. They were coming down on short-term mission trips to help us out. Um, they started giving financially to help us build a mission space down there to train nationals and to train Americans to do frontier missions work. So it was just really neat. And then they started sending short-term mission trips to Africa, um, adopting an underage people group over in China, So it's just really powerful to watch them go through that transformation.
0: Wow, that is huge. I never would have thought of all of that stuff happening. But, you know, when you think about it, it kind of does make sense. Do you have maybe a habit or something that you do regularly that you believe contributes to what God's been able to do in and through your life?
3: Um one thing i do is just read a lot (laughs) scripture obviously is the first place to start but outside of that i read lots of missions blogs and leadership books and cross-cultural missions and contextualization books um biographies of missionaries i would say that reading definitely keeps me engaged and keeps me challenged especially reading you know fathers of the faith that have gone before us and the missionaries, the Hudson Taylors and William Carey's and folks like that.
0: You know, as I think about it, I hadn't really considered this very thoroughly before, but it seems like a lot of times pastors and missionaries and people in that kind of ministry end up doing a lot of educational things, a lot of things, you know, investing in professional education, if you will, going to college and things like that. And then there's not necessarily a material salary that's commensurate with the level of education and for a long time that kind of bothered me but as i'm thinking about it i'm thinking you know we serve the king of kings and why would we not invest in that kind of education knowing that really it's not about the paycheck that we get you know it's about the impact that we're having for you have you made consistent Um, investments in your education beyond just, I don't want to say just beyond, you know, continuing to research and read? What what kinds of things have you done to continue learning and growing?
3: Yeah, my story is kind of unique because I felt like God was calling me away from academic world. After high school, I went on a short-term mission trip that really wrecked my life. Uh, My wife was actually on that short-term mission trip. She was at school at William and Mary. I was finishing up high school. And on that trip, I really felt like God was giving me a strong call to go to the nations um, and a pretty urgent call to go and drop everything. My family's always been a very big education family. Everybody's got master's degrees and beyond, and it's just (laughs) expected that you go to school. The only thing that I knew to become a missionary is you go to Bible school, you go to seminary. Um, So my plan was to go to John Brown University and then head to the nations. Um, I I felt this real strong calling that God was calling me away from that. And I really wrestled with God. I gave him all these excuses. God, that's going to break my family's heart, you know. My parents are never going to accept that. He would always give me a scripture. You've got to leave father, mother, brother, and sister. I would say, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I need an education to be able to do missions well. He would lead me to the verse that said, Man, these guys were ordinary, uneducated men, but they had been with Jesus. God, I'm too young. You can't go to the mission field as a 18-year-old, 19-year-old. You would send me to Jeremiah's call. You are not too young. I'm going to be your voice. So it's kind of interesting when you talk about education. A lot of times I definitely felt underqualified and undereducated uh, in a formal sense to go to the nation's But I really felt like he would teach me everything that I needed to know along the way. And he really did that just through different mentors, reading books, YouTube videos. I'm a lifelong learner, but I don't have any papers or letters behind my name to show for it. Um, So, yeah, maybe that would be an encouragement to some of your listeners out there that God can use the quote-unquote uneducated to take the good news to the ends of the earth.
0: Yeah, man, that is, that is huge. I had no idea we were going to head that direction, but seeing how God's moved in your life in that way is just astounding. With that, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to shift our focus away from you, you and more toward your ministry.
1: Sounds great. Take your leadership to the next level. It's time for the Engaging Missions Leadership Minute.
4: Good day. This is Scott McClellan with your Leadership Minute. I'd like to ask you a question here, and if you don't mind, consider it for me. Can we use our advantage to the benefit of others? What does it mean, personal advantage, first of all? Perhaps we're really wise, we have a deep heart of compassion, Uh, maybe we're good looking or have a lot of money, maybe we're born into privileged circumstance. These are all things that are calculated to us as personal advantage, and you you no matter who you are you have some of these how is it that you take your personal advantages things that could calculate up to your own benefit and turn those things over to the benefit of others this is the example that jesus showed us a life of service he didn't uh count his high and royal birth as a son of god as something to his own benefit but he used those things that were advantage to him in the service of others and actually laid down his life in ultimate service. I think this is something we want to grow in, laying down our own claim to advantage in the prosecution of that benefit to other people. It's a good question. And I'd like to ask you today, how can you use the advantages you've been given to be a blessing and a benefit to other people? If you'd like to feedback on that or send me uh, your thoughts, please do so. As I am, Scott McClellan with FX Missions. If you'd like to contact me or us, please do so at fxmissions.com or on most social media outlets at FX Missions. Have a good one.
1: This has been the Engaging Missions Leadership Minute. If you have a leadership question, send it to feedback at engagingmissions.com. That's feedback at engagingmissions.com.
0: We are back with Grant Haynes of Global Frontier Missions. We've been getting to know him, but now we're going to shift our focus to his ministry, Global Frontier Missions. So Grant, as we move to the present day, we're going to want to hear a little bit more about your ministry and that kind of stuff. But before we get into that, we probably need a little bit of context. You minister to refugees, but we might all not We might not all have the same understanding of what that means. So can you share with us, what's a refugee?
3: Yeah, this was a whole new area for me coming back from Mexico as well. Basically, there's 16 million refugees in the world right now. And a refugee is somebody that was forced out of their country. They had to leave their geographical country because of genocide or some sort of persecution based on religion or race or ethnicity. Um, And so there's 16 million displaced people that have had to leave their country. Um, For example, the Syrian crisis, all those people that have had to leave Syria to live in Jordan. There's lots of Burmese that were forced out of their country squatting in Thailand. Um, The United Nations sets up these camps all over the world, and these refugees are living in them. And basically these 16 million refugees get put into a lottery system, and about 160,000 out of those 16 million kind of hit the jackpot and hit the lottery um, each year and get placed in places like Australia, Canada, U.S., Switzerland, Brazil. And so the U.S. um, Congress has decided to set the number at 72,000. Um, This year to bring into the US as an act of goodwill. So we bring in 72,000 refugees from Bhutan, from Nepal, from Burma, Vietnam, um, Bosnia, Syria, Afghanistan, Ethiopia. Somalia, all these different places, and they get scattered over about 300 different locations in the U.S. And kind of our slice of the pie in Atlanta is about 4,000 of those refugees every year.
0: Wow. So you know, we're, we're talking about refugees living in camps. My assumption is when they come to the states or wherever they end up being placed, if they're lottery winners, if you will, they arrive with probably about nothing. What's it like for them? What do they arrive with? What do they have to learn? What kinds of new life skills do they have to pick up?
3: Um, Yeah. I mean, they literally pretty much show up with one backpack. That's usually what they showed up in the United Nations refugees camps with. And then they're kind of on food rations for the time that they're there living very simply. Um, They come to the U S with what's on their back. So English is a very high priority. They, They need English for sure. Um, they need jobs. They're given to agencies that are in charge of their resettlement, and those agencies give them a $900 welcome to America gift. Mm. And within the first 90 days, they're assigned a caseworker that helps them get settled into their apartment, gets them signed up for English classes, gets their kids enrolled in the local school, and has to find them some sort of job within those first 90 days. Um, And then they lose their caseworker and they need to be somewhat self-sufficient, which is almost impossible. If you can imagine being dropped in a foreign country with nothing, someone helps you for 90 days and takes off, which is why we're trying to educate the local church and say, hey, we've got this great mission field coming to our backyard. Let's help these guys get involved.
0: So, you know, as we're coming up on an election year, already things like immigration are a hot topic, and I don't want to create a situation that's divisive, but you had also asked about being able to share what God's perspective is on foreigners, and I would love for you to do that. Can you share with us what what God thinks about foreigners?
3: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. It's definitely a hot topic in the news right now, and we need to base our convictions based on the word rather than our political views And I I definitely understand all the issues. I understand the tax (laughs) ramifications. I understand dangerous people potentially coming into this country. But if we get into the word and you look up the word foreigner stranger, alien, sojourner, you're going to see it hundreds of times, especially if you look in the book of Deuteronomy over and over, God says, take care of the orphan, take care of the widow, take care of the Levite, and take care of the stranger. Um, in, In the New Testament, when Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats, you were a stranger and you invited me in. I was a stranger and you invited me in. So there's all these verses that talk about, hey, when there's foreigners living among you, take care of them, take care of them physically. In the Old Testament, they wouldn't harvest the outside of their fields or they wouldn't go through their fields a second time because that was for the widows and the orphans and the poor. And it says right there really clearly the foreigner. And God would say over and over, remember when you were a foreigner, remember when you were a stranger in Egypt, kind of reminding God's people to have compassion and mercy when people come from other countries. So we really need to let that define our attitude and heart towards people that are coming in rather than CNN or Fox News or anything else.
0: Yeah, that, that's really good. I, it, it's so hard, you know, with, with all of the, the stuff coming at us constantly, I, I have a few friends on Facebook that, um, it, it seems like all they do is parrot some political party's view on this thing. And, and I think the thing I'd like to share, if I could kind of piggyback on that is let, let the government do the governing part of this, let them figure out whatever it is that they need to know, because we have an opportunity, you know, To to minister the love of Christ to somebody who's in a place where they might be filled with fear and maybe they need peace. They might be filled with a sense of hopelessness and maybe we can bring them hope. I, I think that we miss the opportunity sometimes because we're so embroiled in things that somebody else is deciding for us anyway. Uh, But anyway, I'm going to get off my soapbox. One of the things that's so exciting to me is the idea that, you know, in the kind of ministry that you're doing where God is bringing the nations to you, that you can have a local and a global impact. Can you share with us what kinds of impact sharing God's love in these situations can have?
3: I mean, one of my favorite stories was actually down in Mexico. One of the things that brought us back here to reach out to internationals, Marcelino, was this guy in this village. He was a pretty bad drunk, and he came up here, and he was working in North Carolina in the tobacco fields. Uh, He was a really bad drunk, would come hungover to work, be there late. They weren't getting the work out of him that they wanted to. And his boss, who isn't even a believer, told Marcelino, you need to go get sobered up. you got to start going to church. (laughs) So this guy that's not even a believer makes Marcelino start going to church to get sobered up so he can get some better man hours out of him. Marcelino gets radically saved at this little church in North Carolina, gets discipled, and ends up getting a burden for his village back home because he's the only believer. He's the only one that's ever heard of Christ. And so he goes back home as a missionary to his own people. And now his cousin has accepted Christ, his aunt has accepted Christ. His little village of 300 now has a church of 120. Wow. (laughs) Some church up in North Carolina stopped having a bad attitude towards these people that are coming in and started looking at it as an opportunity in a mission field. You know, you can always hear the cliche what would happen if you led the next Billy Graham to the Lord? (laughs) We may have all these little Billy Grahams from all over the world sitting in our university campuses as international students, here as immigrants, refugees. I mean, we would love to see people come to know Christ here get discipled and then go back on mission to their own people. And then, like you said, that would be having a local impact and then a huge global impact as well. And we may be able to get to these countries that we have a very hard time getting a visa into, Mm -hmm. but God's bringing them here, like the Saudis, for example. (laughs) Try getting a visa into Saudi Arabia to share good news. Yet there's 70,000 Saudis here as international students right now. If we can reach out to these guys, see them come to know Christ, disciple them and send them back on mission, man, the ripple effect of that could be amazing for the kingdom.
0: Yeah, I I remember a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with a friend of mine who's uh, a minister on campus at one of the colleges here, and they're looking toward their largest influx of uh, international students this year. And he said one of the things he said that so excites him is that the governments of of countries like Saudi Arabia and some of the other countries we can't even get to are actually paying for the education and giving the expectation to these students that you go and you learn the, the, the U.S. culture. And he said, as he talks to them, one of the things he's able to tell them is if you want to understand u.s culture you need to understand u.s history and if you want to understand u.s history you need to understand the bible and you need to go to a church service you need to know some christians so that you can understand the perspective that we come from and then have that opportunity for these people to impact their lives and and you know potentially lead them to christ potentially make an impact across across thousands of miles all on the dime of that actual government have you seen the same kinds of things
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And like I said, we just need to change our perspective and our attitude and get past our biases and look at this as an awesome opportunity uh, rather than a burden.
0: That's good. That's good. Um, you know, one of the other things that you'd wanted to talk about was the strategies that you're using to plant churches and to, to train missionaries. And I'm not exactly sure how to frame up this question, except to just kind of throw it out there and go, how are you doing this? How, how are you planting churches? How are you training missionaries?
3: Yeah, one of the things also that brought us back from Mexico to the U.S. that we just thought was uh, divine intervention and him giving us his strategies is when you look at the book of Acts, in Acts 2, one of the reasons that Jesus said, stay here, don't go make disciples of all nations yet, the main reason is because we needed his power, we needed the Holy Spirit. But he also said, do not leave Jerusalem until you're filled with power from the Holy Spirit. What was special about Jerusalem it had people from all these tribe tongues, people and nations in one city. And so we felt like God was laying on our hearts to set up in cities that are very multi-ethnic, very international. What would happen if an awesome movement of God happened in Atlanta, in New York, in Chicago, in overseas places like Sydney and Bangkok, if God showed up in these Jerusalems, and then from there the gospel would trickle out into all these different people groups since all the nations are gathered in these large cities So when we were down in Mexico, we were mainly drawing people that had a heart for Latin America or spoke a little bit of Spanish. But our passion is the 1040 window in the area of the world that has the least amount um, of good news, the least amount of churches, the least amount of evangelical presence. And so God laid on our heart to set up shop in some of these large American cities Um, Like Atlanta, we've got a group of us over in Houston and another group up in Richmond. And so the idea is to bring people here for five months to a year, pour into them, get them equipped so that they can go to the ends of the earth. And what we're finding is that, you know, a lot of them are ending up in full-time ministry. Some of them are realizing how strategic this ministry is of reaching out to internationals right here. So they're sticking around longer in Atlanta and Houston, and others are going, you know, Uh, Afghanistan and Morocco and Vanuatu and India and Thailand and all these different places. So we bring people in for five months to a year. We give them training in the mornings, you know, kind of academic, formal, missiological training. And then in the afternoons, they go out and hit the streets uh, meeting felt needs, teaching English classes, teaching after-school programs, helping folks with job placement, helping them get their apartments set up, taking them to doctor's visits. And through that, just a lot of relationship evangelism, starting Bible studies with folks that are interested in the Word, getting them into a 7 Am study through the Gospel of John or a Discovery Bible study through some of the parables in Luke. So we bring people in for a season as a great way, you know, let's see you lead a Muslim to the Lord before we send you all the way to North Africa, the Middle East. Let's see you start a little Bible study with some folks from Burma before we send you all the way over to Southeast Asia. So it's a real good screening tool, a real good training tool for folks that want to serve overseas. And also, like I was saying earlier, it's a gold mine of uh, mission opportunity with the nations and unreached coming to us in our own backyard.
0: Yeah, that, that's that's really powerful. As I'm thinking about this, I'm, I'm also thinking that there might be somebody who's listening, who goes, you know, this is really resonating t- with me. I've never had any kind of training like this. If somebody was feeling that direction, would you recommend that they reach out to you and see what that next step is?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I think there's a lot of value in formal education. You could go the Bible school route, uh, but we've kind of taken this holistic approach where we try to have a good balance of the head and the heart and the hand and Head is important. We want Bible knowledge. We want missiology. We want how to learn a language. We want to how to share your faith with Muslims. But we also want heart. Character is so important, and integrity, and an abiding relationship with Jesus. If you want to have longevity on the mission field, and then the hands piece. A lot of times you go to Bible school and you get a lot of good head knowledge, but there's no way to immediately apply it. What's cool with us is you get some head knowledge training in the classroom. You're living in community with a lot of other missional-minded folks, and then we go out in the community and we share our faith with Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, and we get to immediately apply storytelling principles and discovery Bible studies. So, yeah, we we would love to equip anybody that has a heart to reaching out to the nations that are coming to the U.S. or have a heart to uh, get trained to go overseas.
0: Uh, That's really good. As we're drawing this section to a close, I really just had one other question that I wanted to ask you. And it's really about what keeps you going and what is it that fuels your passion as you minister?
3: It really is that abiding peace. (laughs) Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So. I love missions. I love strategy. I love unreached people groups. I love refugees. I need to make sure that my love for Jesus trumps all of those other things. It's so easy for me to allow missions or ministry to become an idol or become the focus of my life. And even my identity, oh, there's the missions guy. There's the refugee guy. I want to be the Jesus guy. So God always brings me back to apart from me, you can do nothing abiding and remaining is the most important thing. And out of that is where the fruit and ministry is going to come. I was looking at a verse the other day in Mark 3 where Jesus was calling the apostles. And he says that he called them to be with him, and then he sent them out. And that just went to my core. Just again, God calling me back to repentance, calling me back to Jesus calls me first and foremost to be with him. And then out of that, he sends me on mission.
0: That's good. We are going to go ahead and take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to shift our focus one last time. We've been getting to know Grant and a little bit about our, his ministry. Now we're going to shift our focus toward you as the listener.
1: If you're enjoying the Engaging Missions show, would you consider partnering with us? You can do that by telling people about the show or by donating to help cover the cost of the show. Visit engagingmissions.com partner to learn more.
0: Do you know a ministry leader, church planter, or a missionary who you believe would be a great guest for our show? Why not let me know about them? I rely on you and my former guests to help me find missionaries and ministers who are rock solid in what they do and how they approach ministry. I'm not necessarily looking for the proverbial rock star. Many of my guests have done things that might seem amazing, and others are heroes of the faith simply because of their faithful obedience. But all of them have one thing in common. Jesus is the absolute center of what they do and why they do it. If you know somebody who fits the bill, let me know. Send an email to feedback at engagingmissions.com and let me know who they are and how I can reach out to them. And be sure to let them know that I'll be reaching out to them as well. Again, that's feedback at engagingmissions.com. All right, we are back with Grant Haynes. For the last half hour or so, we've been getting to know a little bit about him and the ministry, Global Frontier Missions. Now we're gonna to begin to draw from his experiences and insight because as we bring missions home, sometimes what that means is that we become those homeland missionaries in our workplaces, in our communities. Other times it means that we have a stronger connection with the missionaries we've sent out to the ends of the earth. So Grant, what would you say to somebody who, like most of our listeners, is called into the market place. They, they care about missions, but God's called them somewhere else. And they're starting to wonder if what they're doing in the marketplace really matters in the kingdom.
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. I I would encourage them to regularly reevaluate and ask God that question. God, is what I'm doing mattering for your kingdom? Just encourage them to live with intentionality. God definitely calls people into the marketplace, and I would encourage them to do that. We've actually got a week in our missionary training school that talks about business as mission and work as worship. Um, Because a lot of the places that we want to send missionaries, you can't go in there as a traditional missionary with a religious visa. We're going to have to go in as doctors and engineers and teachers and IT people and everything else. So we've got this whole segment where we talk about God made work. He designed it. It was his idea before the fall. And we encourage people to go into the seven spheres of society, that we need kingdom-minded people in the business world. We need kingdom-minded people people in the education and government systems we need kingdom-minded people christ followers in media and entertainment so i would encourage everybody just to live with intentionality be open to God shifting you into more of an overseas role, or intentionally reach out to the internationals that may be working around you. You may have folks from other countries working in the cubicle right next to you, or working under you. Take advantage of those opportunities. Take advantage of jobs that allow you to get overseas, using your occupation uh, to potentially open the, open doors for the gospel there.
0: It's interesting that you had shared, that you just shared about, you know, using business as ministry overseas. And I remember uh, a few months ago, I was talking to, um, it was Dr. George Patterson, and he was talking about how sometimes we will send missionaries over and we'll give them sort of a fake business to run. And he said, the, the nations they go to, they recognize these, they recognize this business that can't possibly be supporting someone at the level that they're living because of the volume of business that they're doing. And he said, they immediately know it's either CIA or... Or worst case scenario, probably a missionary coming in. Yeah. Um, has your experience been that you have to send people in who actually have job skills and actually can run a business or have, hold down a job in another culture?
3: I mean, the business, the missions world is moving more in that direction. There's a whole movement called BAM, Business as Mission, or B for T, Business for Transformation. So there's this big shift towards tent making. There's a little bit of shift of the traditional raise your own support and go to the nations model. Um, A lot of folks, when they're asking us for advice for going overseas, we kind of discourage the Bible degree route um, and encourage them to get some sort of skill set that will help them overseas. And like you said, a lot of times we're trying to take missionaries that have this skill set of learning language, going cross-culturally, starting Bible studies, But what we need to do is take some of these guys that are really skilled in the marketplace and get them overseas and teach them some of the Bible study techniques and contextualization and sharing your faith type of thing. I mean we've said over and over in our context, it would be huge if we had somebody that could come in and start a business and take advantage of the refugee labor that we have in Clarkston. Most of these guys have to go two hours away to work in chicken factories. Hmm. Most of us are trained in missions type stuff and not in business. So we don't know the we don't have the know-how of startup capital and all these different things to start a business from scratch or maybe we could employ five of these guys or 12 of these guys are sort of a big operation that, you know, hires a hundred of these guys and have it just be a kingdom minded business where these guys are getting a fair wage, but we're also pouring into them spiritually. So those are the type of things. I think we've really wasted the marketplace guys skills and experience when it comes to missions how terrible is it that we get these guys to go overseas and, and paint that wall white that was blue last week rather than tapping into all the skills and knowledge and understanding that these guys have of economics and education and health care and taking advantage of that and leveraging that for awesome kingdom work among the nations?
0: As you think about the the refugee population, you were just talking about having difficulty finding a job, you know, having to go two hours or more to work in a, in a chicken factory. What's the number one challenge they have when they're trying to find a job?
3: Uh, language barrier. They come in with very low English. So a lot of times they do need warehouse or factory jobs. But as their English does get better, you know, they start looking at food service industry, um, hospitality industry. Um, we've got some job training, teaching them welding and different skills like that, where maybe they can move up and start making 20 $25 an hour rather than $8 entry level stuff. So language barrier is probably, you know, one of the most difficult things when it comes to these guys getting better jobs and having more opportunities in this country.
0: If somebody is looking around their neighborhood or their workplace and they've started to realize that some of the people that are are surrounding them, maybe somebody who's new, maybe somebody that's been there a while, is from another culture, what's one thing they can do to start building a bridge and showing the love of Christ to that person?
3: I know it seems really basic, but just... Get to know them. (laughs) Say hello. We've talked to refugees that have been in the U.S. for two years, and we talk to them and say, how are you doing? How have you adjusted to this country? What do you need? Have you made any friends? Are you lonely? These guys are really lonely. And we've had folks that have said, we've never met an American since we've moved to the United States because they get set up in these apartments that are primarily refugee, and that's all they hang out with. And we've heard statistics that 85% of international students that come to this country never get invited into an American home. So honestly, just taking the time to say, hey, who are you? How did you get to this country? Where are you from? Teach me a phrase in your language. And these guys are so hospitable that usually, you know, turns into a long conversation and probably an invitation into their home for an ethnic meal or something like that. So start with baby steps, go to an ethnic restaurant and talk to the waiter a little bit, ask them about their story, um, and just keep an eye out for signs and other languages, maybe stop in their stores every once in a while. And conversations are so easy to strike up. Um, they're usually really open to prayer, no matter which country or religious background they're from. Really easy to say, Hey, can I pray for you? What, what's going on in your life? For refugees, God's opened lots of doors just for praying for jobs for them, praying for their kids to do well in school. God answers those prayers, and <laughs> that's a powerful tool.
0: You know, as you were sharing that, one of the things that really struck me is just the, the bias that we seem to have against foreigners. And I, I don't think that it's necessarily an American thing, but in our area, we're coming up on some elections and there are a bunch of billboards around. And somebody was complaining that there are a whole bunch of political campaign billboards up in Arabic. And mm-hmm. I haven't obviously I haven't seen all of the billboards, but the one that I did see was John 14, 7. I'm like, like, we we just, sometimes I think we don't even know what we're talking about when we get offended by that kind of stuff. Is there any reason to be afraid of reaching out to a foreigner, uh, trying to start that conversation?
3: I think that is the biggest hurdle for us getting involved. But again, we can't let politics or the media or anything cloud our judgment. The word is supposed to give us direction and the word is supposed to tell us what to do. God says, reach out to the foreigners. I love them. And Jesus says, perfect love cast out fear. If we're afraid of Muslims, what should we do? We should love them in the name of Christ. If we're afraid of Mexicans taking over this country, what should we do? We should love them in the name of Christ. And then, man, if these guys become brothers and sisters, definitely nothing to fear. Does that mean that we check our brain out the door and not be aware of Islam and different things that we should be concerned about? Well, let's be concerned. Let's understand the issues. But fear has no place in the life of a believer. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, and, yeah, we do not need to be ashamed of the gospel. We do not need to be afraid. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. So I would just encourage people to go into these conversations with a biblical perspective rather than whatever the world is telling us to think about
0: these issues. Is there an internet resource, maybe something that you use on a regular basis that you would recommend for our listeners?
3: Uh, JoshuaProject.net has a list of all the different people groups in the world. And you can click on people groups from every country and it'll give you a little bio on them. It'll give you prayer points. And then it even has things like the Jesus film or New Testament audio, um, where if you reach out to internationals and you find out what country they're from or language they're from, you could actually burn them a Jesus DVD or you can print out the gospel of John in their language and give it to them as a gift. So we use joshuaproject.net all the time. Um, and also peoplegroups.info is a great website. You can type in your zip code or surrounding zip codes, and it'll give you a list of all the different countries and how many people are from that country and your own zip code in your own backyard, which is a pretty cool tool.
0: That, that really is cool. I'd never heard of peoplegroups.info. That's great. Is there maybe one book that you'd recommend for our listeners?
3: Um, Just along the same theme, J.D. Payne has written a great book called Strangers Next Door, uh, which just helps give a biblical perspective and some real practical tips of how we can welcome the foreigner well.
0: That was Strangers Next Door?
3: Yep, J.D. Payne.
0: Okay, and for those of you who are listening, if you're on your way to work or you're working out or something like that, uh, don't worry about trying to text yourself while you drive. Just when you get to where you're going, stop by engagingmissions.com slash Grant Haynes, and we'll have all of these resources linked up for you right there. Now, Grant, we're just about done. Would you mind sharing with us one last piece of advice and the best way for someone to connect with you? Then we'll say goodbye.
3: Um, The best way is just to get connected with our ministry global frontier missions.com um, or go org. My name is Grant Haynes, H A Y N E S. And I would leave you with just what I shared about earlier. Um, let, let's run this race really well. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's not glorify mission. Let's not glorify lost people. Let's not glorify sex trafficking. Let's not glorify the news or immigration. Um, let's be the people of God and fix our eyes on Jesus. As we abide in him, he'll let us know what to do, whether we're in the marketplace or on the front lines in the 1040 window sharing good news. I just want to encourage and call all of us back to this really intimate, close, walking, loving relationship with Christ. And out of that, we will learn how to parent, and we will learn how to live in our communities, and we'll learn how to seek and save the lost.
0: Well thanks Grant. That was great. I really appreciate you being with us today thanks so much for having me
1: here's a taste of what's coming up on the engaging
2: mission show i I saw just it just happened to be that the time I graduated there there was a particular need for workers on our campus uh, across not just within our church but across different ministries and I really started praying God what do you want me to do and 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 I started thinking about how Catherine, you know, I was talking to her and then she was gone. And I started thinking, man, what if I'm gone in a month or in a year or in two years? And really, God just started putting an urgency for the Great Commission. And it came to a point I was evangelizing on campus one day and, and usually um one of the ways we, we, we start engaging people is as we get into conversation, we ask, if you know, hypothetically speaking, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? I just started thinking, man, there's so many of these students. Uh, have they been in Catherine's spot that the answer would be no.
1: If you enjoyed that, you won't want to miss a single episode of the Engaging Mission Show. Subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher to have it delivered automatically. Visit engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. That's engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. Thanks for listening to The Engaging Missions Show. You can find more great content like this along with show notes by visiting engagingmissions.com or by subscribing to the show in iTunes or Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. Audio editing was provided by Jeff Butterworth of Sound Paradigm Studio. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next week.